welcome to our new podcast, Show Me Archaeology. This podcast seeks to share archaeological work that helps us better understand and connect with the people and places that have shaped our society today. I'm your host, Missouri Humanities Archaeologist Erin Whitson, and our guest for this episode is Alex Velez. Alex is an adjunct lecturer in biological anthropology at the State University of New York in Oswego and is skilled in osteology, writing, and editing, public speaking, and archaeological survey and excavation. He's a Fulbright alum currently involved with several excavations and research projects in Spain and past involvement with research projects in Kubifora, Kenya. Alex is also an anthropology PhD candidate at Binghamton University studying paleoanthropology. He is passionate about investigating how people and Neanderthals have shaped and have been shaped by their environments. His interests also range into the world of zooarchaeology. While his typical focus rests in studying how Neanderthals from Spain heard the world around them, for this talk, Alex will be discussing the work he's currently in the process of publishing that took his Neanderthal work and applied it to a phenomenon that affected American settlers on the Great Plains called Prairie Madness. Welcome, Alex, and thank you for joining us today. Hey, Erin, thank you for having me. Can you tell us a bit about how you became interested in pursuing anthropology and what all those fancy words really mean about what you study? So originally, I actually wanted to go to medical school and become a medical doctor. Um, but I actually, well, I got in touch with a teacher who uh, convinced me that researching biological evolution would be a lot more fun than dealing with medical school. Um, and so I really got into, uh, biology and evolution and how, uh, humans can change over time, both as a result of the environment and as a result of some of the cultural things that they can do. Very cool. What about the words paleoanthropology, zooarchaeology, what are, what are those? Oh, sure. Um, so paleoanthropology uh, just means that I'm a paleontologist who focuses on human evolution. Uh, so my main, my main field of focus is um, Neanderthal evolution and uh, humans as they existed in the mid-Pleistocene. So that's roughly 2.5 million to 11,000, 10,000 years ago. Uh, and zooarchaeology is a subbranch of archaeology that specifically looks at animal bones and what they can tell us about human culture. So foodways, uh, environment, um, things like that. When we introduced you a little bit ago, we talked or we heard that you've done um, some work in Spain and Kenya. Can you give us a quick idea about what that work entailed? And did you dig? Was it mostly walking around and looking at the ground? What was it like? <laughs> Um, so yeah, the sites in Kenya and the sites in Spain are night and day. So <clears throat> for one, uh, the site in Kenya, um, Kubifora, is actually near an area that experiences and has experienced a lot of uh, volcanic activity. So it's way different navigating that kind of landscape than it is for central Spain. Um, <clears throat> so for for instance, in Kubifora, we actually had to camp out for about six weeks while we were working there, uh, whereas we pretty much stayed at a youth hostel the entire time in Spain. And of course, you know, the climate conditions are, are different in that day as well. Spain, is, Spain can get pretty hot, but it doesn't hold a candle to <laughs> Kubifora. Really? 
Did you, so, I mean, what were the, the challenges in doing that work? Oh my. Um, <laughs> so you remember how I said that Kubifora is in an area that has a lot of volcanic activity, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So the sediments there uh, tend to be a lot denser than you would find in other areas. Um, we get a lot of uh, volcanic sediments such as basalt, which are super hard and nary impossible to break through. So if you are digging through a test pit, for instance, and you hit a layer of basalt or you have a large basalt rock in the way, it's going to take a lot of time to clear out. Um, we also get a type of sediment called volcanic tophaceous silt, which is essentially silt uh, mixed uh, river silt or lake silt mixed in with the same vo dense volcanic sediments. Um, and so it's incredibly hard. You can go at it with a pickaxe for an hour and barely make a dent in it. Yikes. So, so yeah. you're coming away with this with big muscles, right? <laughs> oh, for sure. Um, so yeah, excavation there is pretty difficult. Um, I wish the fossils were just sitting on the surface. And some, and you know, sometimes they are. This is a really fossil rich area. Um, and so digging is really only part of the equation here. We also survey uh, different areas and walk along systematically uh, looking for fossils. And then we, of course, we record the locations of all of the fossils uh, using a GPS system before we actually bag and tag it. Um, whereas, oh, and of course this is, you know, Lake Turkana. So yes, we did have some brushes with hostile wildlife. Um, in particular, we always had to be aware of where the hippos were at all times um, because, yeah, no, like the cartoons, they, they lie to you. Like <laughs> hippos are quite aggressive and they're a lot faster than you look. So never let you never get cornered between a hippo and the water. Otherwise, okay. it's over. Um, and of course, there were other things. For instance, uh, sometimes our parties would get harassed by uh, hyenas or uh, Sykes monkeys that if we weren't careful about uh, you know, putting away our food, uh, we could get raided by monkeys. So that was always a challenge. So that um, adds a lot more uh, adventure to your, your research trips to various places. Did you have any oh, other issues that you had to deal with? I mean, you're going to some pretty foreign countries. Are you having to like vaccinate ahead of time and, and take precautions for your health too? Or what, what was... Yes. So before we headed to Kubifora, there were a list of vaccinations that we had to get. Um, the, the biggest one, however, was um, the yellow fever vaccination. Um, there were others that were suggested, but not necessarily required. Uh -huh. um, for instance, rabies has been all but eradicated in Kenya, so we didn't have to get the rabies shot. Um, but it would be good to get your boosters for um, tetanus as well as uh, HEPs A and C. So what you're saying is this, this job that you do isn't for the weak of heart. No. <laughs> Kubifora was definitely hard mode uh, where field schools are concerned. Um, whereas, you know, in Spain, uh, Atapuerca is located in what we call a karst system. So that's basically a giant limestone, uh, limestone mountain. So it's pretty Missouri's car systems too. So it's, it's kind of similar to how our ground thin soils work too, you think? Oh yeah. So the one other thing is that since a lot of us are digging in cave based systems, uh, we also go through a lot of, uh, clay and silt, Ooh. which, yeah, 
you you know this already when those two mix together it can be like cutting through rubber cement oh that sounds fun <laughs> yeah so every day at the end of the day you know uh we would have to clean all of the trowels uh and all of our digging equipment because if not the clay held the water close to it and you know rusted and eroded your tools nice so lots of fun is what I'm hearing you say. So the work that you did that we're going to talk about today, um, was that sort of, were the conditions similar when you were conducting the research for your project? I guess we should ask you to describe your project first. So, you know, could you, oh, the prairie, yeah. The Prairie Madness Project? Yeah. Oh, sure. So the Prairie Madness Project, my methodology for that one was almost purely virtual. So I used virtual anthropology to do this. So virtual anthropology is a relatively new field uh, that relies more on computer simulations and analyses than, you know, going out and digging through or walking along trenches, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you, sorry to interrupt, but like, I, I guess I should also ask you, so how did you get into virtual archaeology? And um, I mean, is this a common thing you're doing? I've heard that you've, you've, you're doing a little bit of this with your Neanderthal stuff. Could you describe that too for us so that we have a little bit of an understanding of what where you're going with this? Sure, sure. So where the Neanderthal stuff is concerned, uh, fossils are pretty fragile. <laughs> um, you can't always handle them and measure them the way you would something, you know, remains that are a lot more recent. Uh, so it's a lot safer if you were to scan all of the fossils that you need to work with um, and then reconstruct them in virtual space. That way you can measure them, manipulate them, even reconstruct certain portions if you can refit some bones together. Um, and you can do that all in virtual space. And it's all, uh, and it's all uh, very accurate as well because you're measuring it using radiographic scans. Sorry, you're reconstructing it using radiographic scans. Um, so, that's how I kind of first got started into virtual anthropology, virtual archaeology. Um, the Prairie Madness Project uh, started with a conversation. Um, we were just sort of hanging out in the graduate student lounge, and um, someone, I believe, wasn't it you? Um, <laughs> just, you know, in, out of nowhere in a quiet room, just said, What? And I was like, What? And you just said, Oh, no. Uh, I must be hearing things, it must be prairie madness. And from there, that kind of hooked my interest. And I'm like, do, do go on, do explain <laughs> what this is. Uh, and from there, through you and through other uh, sources, I found out about prairie madness as this one phenomenon wherein settlers along the Great Plains region through the 1800s and early 1900s uh, would somehow periodically experience these bouts of um, psychotic rage and depression. Why? And so, I mean, why were people supposedly having these, these moments where they were breaking out into rage and depression? That's the question. Um, so the version of the prairie madness phenomenon that I heard from you, as well as other sources, says that it was the sound of the wind through the plains uh -huh. um, that eventually eroded their sanity. While there were there are other accounts of prairie madness that say that it's actually kind of an agoraphobic response, and just the span of the wide open space is enough to sort of make someone feel uneasy. Um, 
however, if you look at the historical accounts as well as some of the literary accounts, uh, the one that's more common is uh, the sound-based one. So the sound of the winds. Um, and as a matter of fact, Eugene Smalley, who wrote for um, Northwestern Illustrated Monthly Magazine uh, back in 1892, wrote about how desolate uh, the Midwest was and how quiet it was, except for these interludes that were broken by extremely loud gusts of wind. Most of these settlers would have been coming from areas that were quite different, correct? I mean, this would have been something of a shock when they got out here too. Does that play a part in any of this? Oh, yes. So this was actually uh, first theorized by Smalley, uh, Eugene Smalley, as he was writing uh, for this magazine, um, that a lot of the unease that some of these settlers felt was specifically was because they came from these close-knit, highly populous towns where, you know, everyone knew everyone and your neighbor was always just a stone's throw away from you. Uh, suddenly they were put into this vastly different uh, acoustic environment, the sound environment, wherein, uh, wherein the wide open space just sort of swallowed up sound. And it was just deathly silent all throughout. Again, except for these periods where the wind blew across the plains and suddenly it got very loud. Um, so some of the early explanations for Prairie Madness was this combination of um, social depression that came from, you know, being away from one's people. And especially because the home, the original homesteads were so large uh, that, you know, your neighbors weren't exactly a stone's throw away. They were never very close. Uh, so essentially this kind of isolation helped to, well, helped to increase the prevalence of anxiety and depression, uh, which was also, I found, um, made even worse by the sonic environment. Um, as part of your research for this, what were the methods for how you, you did this work? Well, first and foremost, um, I used some of the work from my Neanderthal project uh, to kind of calculate the, uh, to kind of calculate the sound sensitivities uh, for humans. So I, what I did was I calculated the human audiogram. So this is basically a graphic representation of the human hearing curve. And it tells you, you know, what frequencies humans are particularly sensitive to, what frequencies we don't really hear that well. Mm -hmm. um, and I took a couple of recordings from different places in the uh, Great Plains region, um, especially those with uh, meteorological phenomenon like rain or wind. Um, and I, and I uh, took all of these recordings and I subjected them to spectral analysis, specifically to find out what frequencies of sound were present and in what intensity. Uh -huh. um, and I actually saw that the most intense sounds are actually between 100 to 1000 Hertz. Uh -huh. So for one, that is exactly where one of our spikes in sensitivity uh, are as humans. Um, however, noises above that were actually very rare. Uh -huh. And so it was, and so it seemed so weird. So the spectral signature of so many of these uh, different places within the Great Plains seems as though they are very quiet, except for some of the places where human hearing is especially sensitive. So what does that mean? I mean, so can, are these sounds that people can hear outrightly or... Is this something that, you know, is sort of like the dog whistle where we can't really hear it, but we know that it's there. 
What does that mean? No, that was the wild thing. So remember how I said that Eugene Smalley and other writers had said that, you know, it's deathly quiet until it's not. And mm-hmm. other, and then, uh, you know, the wind is all you can hear. Yeah. So the spectral signatures confirmed this. So there is very little sound uh, occurring within these places outside of the frequencies that we are most sensitive. So to us in that environment, it would sound like this place would be deathly quiet until suddenly you started hearing a sound and it's literally all you could hear. Is So what sort of sound are we talking? Are we talking like, you know, like the train sounds that people talk about when we hear tornadoes coming or are these like low whistles or what do we know what this sort of sounds like? Yeah, so it's that low frequency that you hear. So if you've ever heard, for instance, uh, the sound of like wind across a microphone. Okay. That low frequency rumbling. Yes. Like that? Okay. <laughs> Perfect, yes. Um, so it's pretty much that. And like I said, that, although it's, it's a low frequency, it's a, it actually does conform to one of our, uh, one of the frequencies that we're most sensitive to. Interesting. Right? So for human speech, uh, sorry, for the human hearing pattern, we tend to be most sensitive to these to the frequencies in which uh, most human speech is uh, usually occurs. Sorry. Um, so this, however, is a unique phenomenon in that these sounds technically occur along the same frequencies, but of course they're not human speech. Mm-hmm. So they technically, I mean, well, they don't really take advantage. Uh, I should say, because that's kind of personifying them. But this frequency of sound uh, to which we are particularly susceptible to is pretty much the only frequencies that ring out across the Great Plains. Interesting. And this is also because in wide open spaces, low frequency noises tend to carry out across greater distances. Uh So you're going to hear this wherever you are, even if you're in like inside your house, you're not going to escape from the sound that is just there and persistently there at certain times of the year? No, even worse, because again, we're talking about low frequency sounds. So low frequency sounds at a high intensity have this property wherein they can cause things to vibrate. What does that, what does that mean for humans? So it means if you are, so let's say that you're in your house and you're washing dishes or, Uh you know, something. Um, and suddenly the wind starts to blow. Mm-hmm. So for one, you're, you are already hearing the wind because of course the wind there tends to hit exactly at one, uh, at one of the spikes of our sensitivity. However, let's say it's a particularly strong wind, mm-hmm. then it's going to start ringing out across your house and it's going to make the house itself vibrate a little oh, as the sound that. waves are traveling through all of the, you know, the physical substrate of your house. Uh-huh. So not only are you out here, you're stressed and depressed because you've moved away from home and you, you, you are, might be isolated. Um, not only is this new soundscape so definitely different that like, you know, it's going to shock you pretty deeply, but your house starts rattling whenever it really gets going. So that's probably not doing great stuff for your mental health either. I can't imagine. Right. <laughs> no. Um, So I looked at two particular syndromes uh, for this in my work, Um, and there's misophonia and Mm. hyperacusis. All right. What are those? So misophonia is actually the more common syndrome. So have you ever heard, have you ever been in a quiet room and just heard someone clicking their pen over and over? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And it drives some people completely nuts. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So that is misophonia. It's a sort of a psychological conditioning to hate a particular sound. So again, when that sound starts ringing out, it's all you can notice and you hyper fixate on it. And of course, because you find that sound unpleasant, um, people tend to have pretty negative and sometimes violent reactions um, to this noise. Mm -hmm. And again, it's this noise against a backdrop of quiet. Because if someone's clicking their pen on a crowded subway, you're not going to care. Yeah. Actually, chances are you might not even hear it. But yeah, so it's that sound, especially a repetitive sound um, against the backdrop of silence. Um, and then the second uh, syndrome is hyperacusis. Uh-huh. So this is actually a particular sensitivity to a specific frequency range. Now, Normally, uh, humans have humans have bands of sensitivity uh, first at around 1,000 hertz, but we also have another band of sensitivity between 2,000 and 5,000 hertz. That's mm-hmm. usually where most human speech occurs, right? Um, so yeah, there's one spike between, sorry, the first spike is actually between 500 to 1,000 hertz. Mm-hmm. And then we have another occurring at that wider band range. Um, now, somebody with hyperacusis, usually this is because of a pathological process, like a head injury or maybe some damage caused by a disease, uh-huh. uh, either to their brain or to their auditory system, like the stuff going on in the middle ear or their inner ear. And they're pathologically now more sensitive to that sound. Mm-hmm. Um, this can also happen as a result of psychology as well. As a matter of fact, there have been studies where veterans with PTSD develop hyperacusis and also have, inc- um, sorry, an increase in panic responses to noises in certain frequencies. Um, yes. So, you know, at the end of the Civil War, when people are moving west in droves, you might have a ton of veterans out here on the plains who are losing their minds <laughs> because of the sounds. It's oh, not, yeah. it's not a good combination. Yeah. No. And the thing is the classical like the classical example of this is you know veterans usually is veterans hearing for instance uh rain on a tin roof and automatically getting anxious because of it hmm. so i hadn't thought about that but yeah i could see how that might be triggering yeah and so i kind of narrowed it down to those two specific syndromes uh which could explain the increase in uh, mental illness that we see within uh, the early to mid uh, 1800s and the early 1900s. And the thing is, sorry, I actually kind of skipped a step. Uh, So I did do some historical research and I saw that, yes, there actually was this notable uptick uh, in mental illness around this time, uh, such to the point where uh, I believe it was the Roosevelt administration actually got together a committee to try and investigate what was going on and how they could ameliorate conditions for farmers and homesteaders in this area. Did they come up with any plans for how to to lessen the effect of the winds out here? Or was it just like, whoops, (laughs) sorry. Kind of both. Really? Um, Yes. So in the Dorothy Scarborough novel, The Wind, which is one of the literary accounts that really describes uh, prairie madness, um, 
it describes that the Midwest and the West in general became tamed after a while. So uh, people started building settlements and buildings closer together. People started socializing a lot more and the effects of prairie madness seemed to ebb away over time. Interesting. Uh, and so what the Roosevelt Commission found was that, yes, the problem seemed to be subsiding all on its own as uh, homesteads began getting closer together, towns, uh, towns started becoming more urbanized, and people started really socializing with each other uh, a lot more. So being social had some really positive benefits out here. Knowing your neighbor and, and interacting with them as often as you could kind of helps break up the sound problem. Oh yes, that is interesting. So yeah, so that's one of that was one of my conclusions in the original study that it seems as though the base problem here was isolation and depression, especially moving into a new area. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's also because sorry, there's also a sort of subset to the prairie madness legend uh-huh. uh, where it was described to have affected women more. Uh-huh. And, you know, women would have the more dramatic, uh, violent responses. Um, now, I looked into the actual uh, historical evidence, and it, that wasn't actually true. Uh, men had the more violent responses, um, and they we, had the more violent syndromes. Do we know why? Because that's, I mean, that's an interesting thing. Why? Well, <laughs> So I'm not a psychologist, but this is mostly in, in the kind of ways that men deal with depression and anxiety versus women. Mm-hmm. So it's just a, a cultured approach to mental health. That it's, it's, at least in the Victorian period, it was, it was healthier. Or women were seen as being better able to release you know, anxiety and stress and, and tears and whatever other methods, but men were not allowed to do that sort of thing. Or is this... Or at the very least, women were encouraged to deal with it in a different way. Gotcha. Um, with men, um, well, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to overgeneralize, but yeah. this is actually still a problem that exists to this day where men receive less emotional support and particularly with elements of toxic masculinity, we're also taught to glorify violence. Yeah. And so usually, uh, and so a lot of times, especially in antiquity, the best solutions uh, were those that seemed to, you know, be manly and, you know, mm-hmm. rough and violent. And unfortunately, because of this lack of emotional support, mm-hmm. uh, men were more prone to more extreme responses to prey madness and depression, mm-hmm. um, such as, uh, well, yeah, such as um, suicide, assault, battery, um, substance abuse, what have you. Interesting. Sad, very, very sad. But it is, it reflects a, a moment in time that we should learn from, you know. Um, so Missourians who live on the plains, because we are, you know, part of a plain state, um, should they be afraid of something like this today? Or, you know, people who are moving this direction, who have never been in the plains, have used to big towns or cities, if, you know, you're coming from New York City and then decide you're going to buy yourself a farm uh, in North West Missouri, is this going to be something that you need to watch out for? Or is this something that it's not as big of a problem anymore today? Well, today, um, because, you know, uh, people have learned to, uh, you know, build properties closer together. Um, Towns are now built closer together. 
and you know towns are also more social and uh well yes they're also more social and more you know close-knit um it's not as big of a problem however if you are from an area which is more urbanized and you know where things are usually a lot closer there are a lot more people then yes it is kind of something that you need to watch out for mm -hmm. um so yes if you are moving from the big city and decide you know the farm life in missouri is more for you uh, -huh. uh i would suggest that you really sort of insert yourself within you know the local the local culture and you know local social life mm -hmm. um and that will help you acclimate to the environment because if not um this kind of environment tends to amplify these sorts of negative feelings uh, because the silence and the misophonic responses to the sound to the sudden sounds of wind and rain uh, can actually make your depression and anxiety symptoms worse interesting so and um and we talked about like houses rattling back in the the day um is that still a problem today when you're talking about extreme winds i mean you know, if you're moving out in there today, we're, we're using different building materials today and our houses aren't exactly, you know, the sod houses that were on the plains a lot of the time. So, I mean, do you still have as much risk, I guess, of some of those? Well, I mean, if you live in Tornado Alley, most certainly. <laughs> um, I mean, we do. So, but. Wow. Okay. <laughs> So, yes, I mean, houses rattling is just going to be, that's just a property of physics. Okay. Um, you're not necessarily going to completely get rid of that. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, we use different building materials now, and we use different structural reinforcements for our architecture. So it's not like your houses are more at risk of blowing down now, mm -hmm. or as much as they were, you know, in, with the original wood frame houses that uh, settlers built. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, it's definitely less physical risk, uh -huh. although there is, there's still going to be a little bit more like rattling and sometimes wind whistling. Yeah. I've, I mean, I've, so we've had a, a fair amount of fronts come through here the last few weeks. And every time we get a big one that comes through, you know, the wind pushes really hard and I can hear it howling through my office at work or through my home. And it's just these deep, you know, wails of the wind just beaten around that area. Um, most archaeologists study objects in the dirt or things you can see and touch, but you did something a bit odd here with this research by focusing on sounds in the past. Why do you think it matters so much that we explore sounds or how other senses um, may have impacted people? You know, why is sensory archaeology sort of new and hip and something we should think about when we think about the past? Sure. Um, so my very favorite archaeology professor used to say, that archaeologists don't just look at objects. Mm -hmm. So if you if you you can take a clay pot and you can tell me everything there is to know about it, but what are you, but what are you saying about the people? Uh -huh. So archaeology is about people. We use we use materials and artifacts to tell us about people and culture. And if you're not talking about people and culture, you're not doing archaeology. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, you know, that's one of the reasons why he was one of my very favorite um, archaeology professors. Um, so what I'm doing here is kind of a, a relatively new branch of archaeology that looks at the sensory experiences of past peoples. Now, 
Of course, we're not going to be able to perfectly reconstruct everything that people were feeling. Um, however, there are certain things, for instance, the uh, factors that I use uh, for calculating the uh, human hearing curve actually describe the human hearing curve as a species. So this is not something that really differs by population to population. Mm -hmm. um, so it's general enough that I can use it, uh, that I can use it as a proxy for anyone who lived in the Great Plains. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, the bottom line is that in reconstructing these sorts of sensory patterns, we turn sensation and you know perception into its own kind of uh, material culture, as it mm -hmm. were. And so we can look at perception, for instance, perception of the environment, uh, such as you know, the differing levels of light in the environment or sound in the environment. Uh, and we can use those to tell us about the peoples and cultures that lived within a particular area. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, you know, it, it makes them more real because it makes them like us where we can hear and, you know, they can hear and we can share certain things like, you know, the sound of the wind on the plane, which hasn't changed in the thousands of years that people have been tooling around in, you know, those areas. So there's something kind of, I don't know, touching about that. You can connect with other human beings just, you know, by being in the same places that they were and, and dealing with the same things or, you know, dealing with the same stresses. Um, are do you know, are there any stories of native peoples having some of these same stresses that, that might, that we see with prairie madness and, and white settlers on the plains, or is this something that you haven't really poked at yet? So I've actually tried to look at this um, because I've noticed that around this time, uh, if you're looking at, you know, uh, white settlers and even the few black homesteaders uh, that there were, um, you do notice an increase within, you know, prevalence of mental illness. Mm -hmm. And around this time, uh, if you look at some of the figures, uh, for instance, with Native American asylums, you'll note that there's also an, a high, in, uh, high uptick. However, there's also a problem with this mm -hmm. because many of these Native American asylums uh, were, let's be nice and say, suboptimally run. Mm -hmm. um, and the thing is, this actually did cause quite a bit of suffering among many Native communities because a lot of Native people uh, were institutionalized when really there was no cause to do it. As a matter of fact, the Canton, uh, the Canton uh, Native American Asylum, uh, which operated for over 100 years, was shut down specifically because um, the local government took a look at it. And for one, it was over 100 patients over capacity. So they were basically piling people on top of one another. And the vast majority of the people that were committed to that asylum were not actually mentally ill. Mm -hmm. So they were institutionalized for things such as alleged alcoholism mm -hmm. or, <clears throat> or some other such vaguely defined syndrome. Mm -hmm. So in which case, it's really hard uh, to find accurate sources that look on that give an unbiased look at Native American or, or other, or mental health for like any other groups of color. Mm -hmm. um, now, as for, as for accounts, for instance, in antiquity, such as, you know, pre, pre-Columbian accounts, um, I haven't managed to find those either, uh, mostly because, of course, the 
records of these kind of accounts are somewhat spotty um, because a lot of the stories did not necessarily make it, or sometimes na local Native communities don't necessarily feel comfortable sharing that kind of information with outsiders. Which is fair, and, yeah. Oh, yes, it's totally understandable. So unfortunately, no, I don't necessarily know if the local Native American populations uh, had a similar effect had a similar um, phenomenon occur within their population. Mm -hmm. um, although I would, I, although I would love to know, but of course I understand if this is not necessarily something that anyone feels comfortable talking to me about. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And you know, by the fact that they'd been there for a while, I mean, maybe they had time to acclimate, you know, socially to the stresses too. And they were a lot more social. They didn't spread out like American settlers did. Um, they kind of kept in groups, which might've helped too, from what I understand, you know, oh, you've described. Um, so do you see yourself continuing doing this work in the future? Or if not, what direction do you think your future work is going to take? So, yes, um, of course, the, the Midwest isn't exactly the only place with weather in the entire world. Yes. Um, Correct. So I hear. <laughs> and of course, I would love to know if there are differences, you know, within the response region by region. Uh -huh. um, so for instance, uh, I live in the Ontario region. I live right on the banks of Lake Ontario, uh, which is a very, very windy area. We get lake effect snow all the time. As a matter of fact, we're gonna get another lake effect drift, I think tomorrow. Um, so I would love to know, for instance, if some of the people who originally came and settled here or even some of the native populations um, also had trouble adapting to this acoustic environment mm. because of course sometimes late at night I also hear the wind howling really badly and sometimes it almost sounds human-like uh -huh. which is a little <laughs> unsettling um, so yes I would love to go into these different areas or uh, for instance there's also another area with sonic phenomena uh, called for instance the Windsor hum uh -huh. uh, so the town of Windsor usually has sorry, between certain hours has this humming sound, which can be heard throughout the entire town. And sometimes it's so intense that it can actually break windows. Really? That's wild. Is that yes. either Ontario or? Yes, it's in the Great Lakes region as well. Mm. Um, so, so again, I would love to know, for, like I, I have my own suspicions that it may be something wind related. Uh -huh. um, and specifically, it is the wind uh, moving through a lot of these like concrete edifices uh -huh. um, because you get something similar happening, for instance, in Taos, uh -huh. uh, New Mexico with the Taos hum. So there's also a hum that can be heard throughout the entire town in Taos. However, this hum comes from wind going through these subterranean caverns. Really? And as yes, and as the wind goes through the caverns, or so I've been told, um, it creates this sort of like high intensity humming sound, which can be heard above ground throughout the entire city. That's so I have a suspicion that something very similar is happening in Windsor, wherein the wind is sort of dragging through and the friction of the wind through the buildings um, is creating this high intensity hum. Interesting. Um, but of course, I haven't been there, so I can't necessarily test this out, but I would love to. <laughs> um, and I would also love to get some readings in Taos too, uh, oh. because the Windsor hum has also been known to have negative psychological consequences on the local population. So there are high bouts of anxiety, insomnia, and in some cases also depression that are linked to the Windsor hum. 
Hmm. That's interesting. That could be really interesting work. And we look forward to <laughs> poking at you later when you get through that sort of process. Um, so do you have any advice for people who are interested in doing what you do? Or how would you suggest they get started? Can it just anyone play around with thoughts about what sounds in the past might have impacted people? Well, you have to remember that this phenomenon isn't just biological, right? It's also cultural. So it's not just enough to go out there with a microphone and start uh, record, start making you know recordings of every kind of sound environment. Um, you also have to know how to read that data. And you also have to have an understanding of the local population so you can know how they would have reacted to these particular stimuli. Mm -hmm. So... It's a, so it's a little complicated because, of course, you're you have and this is why archaeology is just really, really perfectly situated um, in its exploration of material culture and also actual human culture. So you look at both sides uh, to really know how it is that, you know, people would have reacted in the past. So, yes, my suggestion would be to look at both sides. So it's not just enough to learn biology. You also have to look deep into the history of the people that you're looking at. Well, thank you, Alex, for giving us time today to talk about your fascinating work. For anyone interested in learning more about Prairie Madness, Neanderthal Hearing, or Americans Settling the Great Plains, would you give us a bit more information about where your paper you wrote on this will be published and when it might be coming out? Oh, yes. Um, so it will be published in Historical Archaeology. Thank you again, Alex. Anyone who may have enjoyed Alex's podcast on Prairie Madness is welcome to stay tuned to future podcasts in this series. Please feel free to check out Missouri Humanities website at mohumanities.org to learn more about some of the other amazing programs and projects we've got going, or to tune in to our most up-to-date information about our upcoming events and opportunities. You're also welcome to check us out on Facebook or join our membership program, which helps us to continue to bring cool podcasts and programs to you across the state. By becoming a member, you'll also benefit by getting free books, discounted tickets to special programs, access to members-only events. To become a member, please visit our website, www.mohumanities.org, and click the Join Today tab in the upper right-hand portion of the screen. Finally, I want to give a solid thank you to listeners. It's people like you who make what we do at Missouri Humanities fun. <laughs>